This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today, my guest is Toni Jensen. She's the author of a short story collection from The Hilltop and a memoir in essays called Carrie, a memoir of survival on stolen land, just out from Ballantyne. She's the recipient of the Catherine Ann Porter Prize for Fiction and the Gary Wilson Short Fiction Award. She teaches in the programs in creative writing and translation at the University of Arkansas and in the low residency MFA program at the Institute of American Indian Arts. Welcome, Tony. Thank you. Well, to start off, I want to ask you this. I know nothing about not being able to find myself in the literature in which I was given in school and at home as a child. I grew up in the well-documented territory and time of John Cheever and John Updike. I'm middle class, white, grew up in suburban America, and so I never had to go looking for myself. But you tell the story of reading Louise Erdrich, and that in her stories was the first reference you ever read to being Meti. You are Meti. First, perhaps you can define that for people and then speak a bit about that moment, reading Erdrich, and what happens when you finally see yourself on the page. Sure. Being Meti is an identity predominantly in Canada, but also in the northern parts of the U.S. It's a mixture of an indigenous tribe uh, with French trappers and traders generally, and sometimes Irish or Scots-Irish. And so... In my case, Alberta, but in many other cases, the the middle of the United States or the middle of Canada. So that's what's broadly considered Metis territory. And growing up in the States instead of growing up in Canada in particular, I think, had I grown up in Canada, there would have been, you know, a few models for sure for, for looking and finding that word and myself. But what it meant to me to get the first reference of it. I mean, I was in my 20s, so I wasn't a teenager even. It took until my 20s, I was done with undergraduate even, before I saw that word in print in a book other than a history book, right, in a work of literature. And even even in history books in the States, in rural Iowa where I grew up, you didn't see the word meti very commonly. So it meant the world to see someone who's such an astonishing writer, so artful and lyrical and funny, um, as Louise Erdrich is, to see that word coming in her stories and coming through her stories and also how she wrote her stories, how they were not necessarily always chronological and they had large intergenerational casts of characters from all sorts of backgrounds, um, Anishinaabe and German-American and you know, there are beet farmers and there are working class people. And I felt like for the first time, yeah, I was seeing the way that I grew up represented on the page. Oh, it must have been an extraordinary feeling. So let's just set this up a little bit for people. Um, 
perhaps I, I write and, and I teach memoir, and perhaps the request I get most often from students is for some instruction on how to construct a book-length memoir structured from individual essays. So let's just begin there and remind people that that's what I said in the opener. Your new book, Carrie, is written in essays. So what came first here for you? A piece, an idea, a universal theme, the desire to write a book? Can you just take us back to how this book started for you? I think it started for me with the first few essays that are in the book, except for chapter two. Chapter two, I was asked by my editor, Alana Sepal-Jolly, to to dig deeper and go further back to childhood and situate us for chapter two. But the other ones, Women in the Fracklands, The Invented Histories of Domestic Birds, Give and Go, those, the, those came first, and then the Carrie, the title essay. And so I had these essays some that dealt with childhood, some most that dealt with childhood moments and contemporary moments. In 2016, the shooting at Pulse Nightclub and in such close proximity to what happened at Standing Rock, and then having the shooter, Omar Mateen, at the Pulse Nightclub shooting also be an employee, a former employee of G4S Security who brought the dogs to Standing Rock and Mm -hmm. sicked the dogs on unarmed people. And so having that link be made for me at the same time that my nephew had a gun held to his head in suburban Colorado, the same time I had a gun held on me when I went to the Bakken and to the Standing Rock protest. It didn't happen at Standing Rock. That was a peaceful protest, but it happened off the reservation land. It happened in greater North Dakota. And so having all those things happen in close proximity made it feel urgent to write everything down. It all started with a document I would wake up. It's in the book how I would wake up at 3.14 or 4.14 a.m., And I would just write because everyone in my house was asleep and I was trying to be quiet and I didn't know what else to do with myself. And I wasn't fully alert enough to do work for teaching. And so I would just write down bits and pieces of experience. And those little fragments became those first essays. And then at some point, I realized it could be a book. Mm. But there were enough experiences throughout my life, unfortunately, you know, that that I, I had a book length experience with gun violence versus just a few essays. And since four or five were done, and they all were stylistically kind of of a piece or similar enough to be made of a piece, then it seemed like it would make sense to have it, have the whole book crafted in a similar fashion. So the essays would become chapters. And Mm -hmm. then we would work once they were done to make sure they were in the right order to form some sort of arc. Mm-hmm. And it does. It forms a beautiful arc. I, I, as I said, I work with memoirs, and I define memoir as what you know after something you've been through. And this demands that there be an argument driving each essay or each piece or some overarching argument. And you seem to know a great many things, not the least of which is that our America has a gun violence problem that is directly driven by unfettered access to guns, that we have a sexual violence problem and a problem with how our America tells and lives its original story and much, much more. So as you were working these essays and as you were seeing the connection between the Pulse Club shooting in 2016 and the Standing Rock Dakota Access Pipeline protest also in the same year. Talk about the confidence that it takes to to say these are 
connected. You know, establishing that through line, establishing that argument for a whole book, you touched on it earlier, but sometimes it, it must get a little worrisome. You must say, is there really a connection here? And, and I think writers want to know how you push through when you see a connection that we don't yet see, but that you want us to see. What, what's the process of, of keeping that confidence up of that, of that narrative drive? That's a really good question. For me, the confidence comes from the viewpoint that the country was founded on armed land theft. And once you see the world in that way, it's hard not to see all the connections going back to the founding of the country, to the forcible taking of land from indigenous people and from the forcible removal then of those people Right. And so once you see that, mm-hmm. then the other connections really seem small in a way um, yes. and seem manageable. So it doesn't seem like a leap, you know, to, to trace that. I do remember the moment that I saw Omar Mateen's name next to G4S and I thought, wait, wait, that's Standing Rock. That's those are the people with the dogs. And that was a big moment. I felt like this really is all very connected. The same when I saw you know, on the news, the the hospital where they were taking survivors um, and then some people, of course, who didn't make it after the Pulse shooting. And they're a wing of that hospital was where I had had, you know, my doctor's visits with that the doctor who's in that City Beautiful essay who I really, really liked. He was a very fun and interesting doctor, um, a good doctor. And so then you can't, you can't unsee that once you see it. And so I think it's just a matter of how you view the world. If you're if you're looking for connections and possibilities or if you're closed down and insistent upon a rigid narrative, the one that we're you know, fed every day, right, the, the consumer narrative, the, the Republican versus Democrat narrative, I mean, the more simple the narrative, the more we're served it. And I'm interested in narratives that show the overlap, that show the connections. Well, you do it perfectly. And I think one of the ways you do this is you use this deeply provocative and yet simple phrase throughout the book. You refer to the country as, quote, our America. And I felt such community reading that phrase, such sisterhood, quite honestly. So talk about coming up with that simple but provocative phrase. To me, it seems to disallow any othering of you or anyone and establish a real earned authority. What was your intent with that phrase, Our America? My intent was to have everyone be in this boat with me and with all readers of the book and all people affected by gun violence, which really is all of us. It's still surprising to me the recent shooting, for example, the grocery store shooting in Boulder this past week. A very nice man was interviewed, and he was saying, you know, basically that Boulder that what a lot of people say after a thing like that comes to their town, the Boulder's such a nice place, and, you know, now, like, the the nice bubble has burst or something along those lines. And I my heart broke for him. I mean, that's where my sister and her family live is Boulder. And Stephen Graham Jones, who was my professor, who's a dear friend, and Ramon Asabel, another writer who's a dear friend, right? Like, I was texting everyone and making sure everyone was fine. I understand how nice the community Boulder is, but it's everywhere, and that there are people in America who don't know that yet, who feel like that boat is going down some other river. It's shocking to mm-hmm. me that they haven't, they don't understand that it's it's one boat, and we're all in it 
And we all we all know someone who's committed gun violence, and we all know someone who's mm-hmm. been affected by gun violence. And it's just an irrefutable sort of thing. Or we will soon, right, if we don't already. And that it's terrible, but it's it needs to be a collective conversation. It can't be, oh, that's the Democrats again talking about gun violence. Or, oh, there there are the Republicans over there obstructing, you know, gun legislation or supporting the NRA or whatever. I know plenty of Democrats who are NRA members, and I know plenty of Republicans who want what the Moms Demand Action folks call gun sense laws, right? Like, it isn't really that simple when you bother to talk to people across a, bo- a broad spectrum. So, yeah, so that this Our America that repeats over and over in the book, I was very consciously trying to bring everyone into the boat with me. And I was also trying to show that indigenous people were not often included and women are not often included unless we willfully insert ourselves into the gun violence conversation. And yet indigenous people per capita are more likely to be shot by police than any other demographic. And we're hugely affected by domestic violence as well. And so these are indigenous issues. These are women's issues. And so, yeah, so I was, be- I was being very strategic and purposeful with how I use that phrase repeatedly. I didn't want myself to be, I didn't want to be put outside of the boat, right? Um, you know, that this is yeah. a boat for white men who, who legislate. Um, and I didn't want to be put, <laughs> I didn't want to put anyone else out of the boat either. The white men who legislate are in the boat too. It's a big boat. And and in using that phrase, you also make the point of our collective chickening out when it comes to accepting how we tell the tale of whiteness and wealth. And in other hands, that it might sound othered and accusatory, as you just said, except you always include yourself. You say things like, quote, I'm an American, perhaps after all, complicit and conflicted and worried. And then you go on to say, I am interested both in the naming of things and in the quantifying of them. I am interested in how contrary our natures, mine included. So just a little bit more about the power of the first person presence. Clearly, it keeps you in the boat. Was it hard to keep yourself in the story all the time when sometimes you must feel like you've been so marginalized, as you just said? Indigenous peoples are not included in the conversation. Women are not included in the conversation. But each time you kept yourself in the boat. And I wanted to just have you reflect on that as a writer and on that device. It makes such a difference to the reader. I think it was easier to keep putting myself in the boat because I had chosen to write this book than it was to put people I love in the boat, to tell the stories of family members or former students, people I'm close with, people I love. And that was harder to keep including them. But I didn't want to make it seem like I was the only one narratively, you know, in this boat. To have the statistics be all very separate and have the stories be all very personal is a way that I've seen gun violence stories told many times. And mm-hmm. I wanted to include family and friends and this broad network of people who I know personally all over the country because I have the privilege of having lived all over the country, right, in all these different kinds of places. And so I felt like it was important to emphasize that their stories were included, that this is a broad spectrum of people, a broad cross-section of the country. It's everywhere. It's urban areas. It's rural areas. It's the north. It's the south. It's the Intermountain West, it's the coast, right? It's everywhere. And so 
by including their stories, I was able to demonstrate that. But that comes at a cost, too. Then you're sharing mm-hmm. the terrible stories of people you care for. And that that's harder for me than putting myself in the boat. Yeah. And you and and getting back to that phrase that I quoted a minute ago, complicit, conflicted, and worried, I know that many writers might stop and not write if they knew themselves to be any one of those three things. I think many people think that we're supposed to have all the answers to life's big and small questions before we type the first word of what we're going to say. But you write from conflicted and complicit and worried. How did you give yourself permission to do so? I didn't want to write a book where I was presenting myself as a victim or a hero or the person with all the answers because I'm not really any of those things. And so what do I have to offer then, right? I ask myself that continuously. What do I have to offer here? I have my attention to language. I have my research. I have my stories. And I have my willingness to admit this is a problem that we all have to solve together. It's not a problem for which I have any big astounding answers. I did all this research, and the main takeaway that I came back with was that unfettered access to guns, the more guns, the more gun violence, which is a thing literally anyone who studies gun violence already knows, but it's still not a thing we talk very much about. So I felt like I had to put myself, you know, in all the complexity of myself, and I do have questions still. I grew up in a house with guns. I grew up in a community where everyone owns guns, pretty much. And I grew up with a mother who really didn't like having those guns in the house. And so, you know, I grew up in a conflicted place, eating birds, let's say, that were shot by those guns, right? And and my dad has uh, had a gun collection back then, his, like old guns, historic guns, and some of them are really beautiful. To not acknowledge that, to act as if that isn't so... Mm-hmm. I don't think it serves the narrative. I don't think it'll reach as many people if I'm not showing that I'm a part of gun culture, that we're all a part of gun culture, whether we want to think we are or not. Mm -hmm. And you do it expertly with the language. You have a device in your memoir in these essays where you have a good hard look at a series of words, their etymology and how we use them. I'm not sure which of these, well, I think I am sure which of these is my favorite. And it's the word chicken. And I love what you do here. You reveal the simplest and most complicated of twists. That word chicken in your essay and how you had no idea the word could be verbed, chickened and chickening (laughs) to lose one's nerve. And then you turn to us and pretty much speak directly about all of us chickening out when it comes to guns. It's pretty great. So let's talk about this device and how you chose to go there. The story about chicken and chickening sounds like it just kind of, you just had this aha moment, but you take it throughout the book. So give us the, well, hello, sorry, chicken and the egg of the chickening story, the chickening word use. Yeah, that piece, because it's about something that happened here where I live in Fayetteville, Arkansas, Carla Tyson, who's the one of the Tyson chicken heiresses, it just seems like that would be one of the Webster's words. So the later essays, I had the real true pleasure when I would come into it of being more strategic and thinking a little more deeply. The words bubbled up more organically, which Webster's words I chose in the earlier essays. But then later, I was always thinking, 
where would I go? And chicken seemed like an obvious way and maybe too obvious, right? And so, but then when I saw all of the additional definitions, I thought, oh, no, no, it's good. Because as you say, chickening out, right? Hmm. We're all chickening out collectively from really making meaningful gun legislation change, for example. And we just continue on. You know, we had the same conversation this week after the shootings in Atlanta and after the shooting in Boulder, and, oh, we're, people are going to do something, things are going to change, and then they don't. And so we're still mm-hmm. chickening out this week after two mass shootings. And so, yeah, it just seemed like it really fit, given that she is sometimes called the chicken princess. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so with all the, the hardcore reporting, the etymology, uh, the the candor and the first-person work in this book. I think with all of that, and it's very, uh, it's such a strong series of essays, but I think the most impact to the reader comes in your subtlety. Here's my favorite example. When you report how you stopped growing for a few years, and then at 22, you shot up. A doctor questioned that. It's not what we normally do, of course. You write, quote, at 22, I'd been out of my parents' home for almost four years. It took my body four years to be sure it wouldn't have to go back. Whew. Witnessing such language on our screens at the end of our pens or at our fingertips, we might have a variety of reactions after we write such a sentence or two. What was yours when you saw it took my body four years to be sure it wouldn't have to go back? That was a line that I felt like I got just right. And I didn't, many of the lines, you know, and sentences, I started as a poet, so I still think of them as lines. Many of the lines took a long time for me to be happy with them, but that one came out pretty easily and well. And I thought, yeah, that's that's exactly how it felt. It's the body. And so could there possibly have been other factors? Sure. And I debated, you know, including other possibilities. But in the end, no one can say for sure. But that was the doctor's best guess. And that is my best guess. So even though I was worried a little bit about how that might impact readers, my mom in particular, I still felt like it's important to put that out there. This book is written in part for girls like I was growing up in houses like Mm -hmm. I grew up in, you know, feeling not particularly safe all of the time, not particularly valued, and then in some other ways being, you know, tremendously safe and valued. And so that kind of experience isn't written about, it's usually all negative or it's all positive. And I feel Mm -hmm. like exploring the possibilities of that and what time away from that kind of an experience or that kind of a household, what it can do, not just for a brain or a heart, which is pretty well documented, but for a physical body. I just think that's, I think that's underexplored territory and that it's interesting. Well, it's fascinating, as is the response I had intellectually to reading, as you remind us that despite being Native, we are all of us in this our America. We are all of us visitors. We, you say, we are all of us invaders, though some more than others. And I wondered about the very story of America. The very, I started to think about the original tale or the tale that we were told in school, and or our America is the way you look at it, the way you tell it. And as you did that, you brought me along to reconsider and and wonder. Are we ever going to be able to course correct our telling of this tale? And I genuinely believe this book is part of that process or intended to be part of that process. Was that a feeling you had when you sat down to write? Like, maybe I can help get this right, this story of our America? 
I felt like it was important to shift the conversation for sure. Mm-hmm. Whether or not mm-hmm. I think it will have that sort of an effect, I really try not to think about that because then I'm imagining specific readers or you know people who have mm-hmm. the power to make that sort of change, and I don't often envision them as my readers. And so then, then I'm in this quagmire where it's all readers, readers versus words, words. And so I, I actively sort of don't think along those lines when I'm writing. But yes, of course, I would love that for the book to be part of the conversation that helps shift the way we view land and possession and commerce and guns and how all that's wrapped up together and has been since always in this country, since the very conception of the country. Religion, too. We would have to throw religion in, I suppose. I don't do that as often in the book, but it's part of the foundation of the country, too, of course, and so should be part of the conversation. Absolutely, it should. And one of the more difficult things to do as a memoirist is to write in real time, reporting as you go and writing about it. And as you talked about before, um, when you saw the connection between the Pulse shooting in Orlando and the Standing Rock Pipeline protests, you were right, it was right in the moment. And most of this book feels like it's got immediacy and, and responses. So we've got this intent to be part of a conversation, but you've also got this sense of immediacy. So what does the immediacy allow for in that reflection, um, say when writing short stories or writing short essays that, or, or what, what, you know, what's the, what does immediacy do is what I'm trying to ask for the story. It, it seems to really percolate it for me, but for you, did you find that there was a, a benefit to immediacy that, for instance, writing short stories doesn't have or doesn't poetry doesn't have if you're not responding to something that just happened? Is immediacy a good thing, do you think, in, in, in essay writing? I think it can be. I was really glad that some of the essays are mostly about past things so that not all of them had that sense of immediacy. It started to feel a little haunting when I was writing Contagion, for example, the second to last chapter, and I'm writing about contagion theory, and I'm, I'm beginning to feel like I'm part of a sort of contagion almost at that point where I write about gun violence, and seriously, then another person from my life calls and says, I was in lockdown. There was, an, there was a shooter, an active shooter on our campus, or I went to work today, and we were in lockdown because up on the third floor, this was happening. And So I write about having a connection to, a loose connection to someone in the the Virginia Beach workplace shooting who knew the shooter because it was a workplace shooting, right? And so then I have that connection with the shooter. If I'm going to call the connection, the loose connection to someone in the workplace, then obviously then, right, I have the connection to the shooter. And so it started to feel a little close when I was literally one night working on the Contagion Theory essay and someone took their gun, you know, here in Fayetteville and shot a police officer. And and the thought was that that person was on the way to the square for our Christmas lighting of the, of the light ceremony. And there were lots of people, lots and lots of people there, and including my daughter. And that felt really very close, really very immediate, like too close, too immediate. For the most part, writing about things in close proximity to having them happen worked fine. But that one, also I was on book deadline for that one too. It was one of the last essays completed. That felt really, really too close, um, too timely. 
So there were times where it was uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but I do think it gives an energy also. I was looking for a narrative through line for that piece, and boy, then I had one, mm-hmm. you know. And so um, so narratively, yes, it's good for the piece, but personally or emotionally, it can sometimes be very, very hard. Yes, there's a lot, awful lot of cortisol invited into the body when we try to write like that. And it seems to really benefit the pieces, and yet you have this ability – and, and as we wrap this up, um, I, I want to ask you about this essay entitled Pass, where you seem to be coming to terms, literally to terms, with, as you say in the last line of this piece, how your own passing is a complicated crossing. Can you speak a little bit as we wrap this up about the process of, de- of self-discovery as you write, please? Sure, absolutely. In Pass in particular, that experience that happened with my student here who had allegations, you know, thrown her way, racist, sexist, you know, all sorts of of problems with teaching in the classroom and having undergraduates see her only as a woman of color and not as someone who could educate them. That's an experience that I haven't had to the degree that she has, right? And it's because I'm white passing. And I feel like indigenous writers a lot of times we skim over that. There are some writers with good exceptions, but for the most part, it's, it's an uncomfortable topic because we're not a racial identity. Being Meti is not a racial identity. It's a tribal identity. It's, a, it's an identity that's cultural. And so indigenous people look a wide variety of ways, right? And that's important. And so I think part of why we don't talk enough about being white passing then in our writing, a good many of us, is because we want to make it clear that we're affiliated with or, you know, a part of or of the descent from some sort of tribe. And that's good. That's progress. Not relying on the phenotype, of course, is progress. But also, Mm -hmm. if you live in America and you're ignoring the privilege that you walk around with because you're white passing— the opportunities it affords you, how comfortable white people are around you versus how uncomfortable they are would be if you look like maybe your father, for example, or your grandmother or whoever it is in your family who, who they would more readily identify as indigenous, then you're not doing yourself or your community or your writing any, any good service. You're doing it a disservice is my feeling. We have to have these complex conversations because otherwise we're letting ourselves off the hook and we're patting ourselves on the back for progress that really isn't happening. It's important. It's important to acknowledge, you know, the disparity there and to try to find a way forward where and make spaces where the disparity is less and less until it doesn't exist. Well, I can't thank you enough for contributing to this conversation. I I found the book to be a perfect example of exactly what everybody should be reading right now. So congratulations on a terrific collection and so far a wonderful series of writings. Thank you, Tony. Thank you so much for coming along today. Thank you. The writer is Tony Jensen. You can see more of her at TonyJensen.com. The new book is called Carrie, a memoir of survival on stolen land, just out from Ballantyne. You've been listening to QWERTY. Subscribe wherever podcasts are available. QWERTY is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. 
reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com and take a class with me. And thanks for listening. Thank you.